This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Amateur, The Pleasures of Doing What You Love by Andy Merrifield, out now in paperback. We have lost our amateur spirit and need to rediscover the radical and liberating pleasure of doing things we love. In The Amateur, thinker Andy Merrifield shows us how the many spheres of our lives, work, knowledge, home, politics, have fallen into the hands of box tickers, bean counters, and pedants. In response, he corrals a team of independent thinkers, wayward poets, dabblers, and square pegs who challenge accepted wisdom. Such figures as Charles Baudelaire, Fyodor Dostoevsky, Edward Said, Guy Debord, Hannah Arendt, and Jane Jacobs show us the way. As we will see, the amateur takes risks, thinks the unthinkable, seeks independence, and changes the world. The amateur is a passionate manifesto for the liberated life, one that questions authority and reclaims the iconoclast as a radical hero of our times. The Amateur, The Pleasures of Doing What You Love, by Andy Merrifield, out now in paperback from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. That right-wing people in the U.S. and Europe have made George Soros the answer to so many troubling questions is not very surprising. He's a billionaire, he's Jewish, and, unlike most of his cohort, he is an actual intellectual who spends much of his money on substantively progressive causes. But I'd never known much about Soros, save for those few tidbits I just mentioned, until I read Daniel Bessner's essay on him in N Plus One, which not only sketches out the right's obsessions, but also offers a detailed analysis of Soros as a thinker and philanthropist, coming to the conclusion that Soros's hope for an open and pluralistic society will be forever doomed if we continue to live under the very capitalist system that made Soros so spectacularly rich. What's more, Soros responded with a letter to the editor after Bessner's essay was republished at The Guardian, so we'll talk about that too. But first, before we get rolling, this podcast is supported by podcast listeners like you. It is because listeners donate at patreon.com slash the dig that this whole thing is possible. So if you're not supporting The Dig already, but listen to The Dig and like it a bunch, please support us now at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash the dig. We've got a weekly newsletter for contributions of $5 a month. $10 gets you a copy of either Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism or Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity. And for $20 or more, we have lots of great lefty books to send you. And also, we have a live dig coming up on the left response to the climate crisis in Brooklyn. It's August 17th, 7 p.m. at Verso Books. I've put details in the show notes. Okay, here's Daniel Bessner, a professor of American foreign policy in the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington, and the author of Democracy in Exile, 
Hans Speyer and the Rise of the Defense Intellectual, published this year by Cornell University Press. Daniel Bessner, welcome to The Dig. Uh, Thanks for having me. There are now, according to one count, the accuracy of which I have no clue about, roughly 2,700 billionaires in the world. But for the right wing in the U.S. and in Europe, just one of them is truly evil. And that billionaire is George Soros. Who is he? How did he make his money? And what is it about him that not only so exercises the American right, but that has seen him cast as the central villain in Viktor Orban's Hungary? It's a good question. It's an important question, especially because Soros has become such a figure in our media sphere over the last, really, it seems like he's been there forever, but it's really, I I think, only in the the early to mid-2000s where he became a public figure where people who weren't actively engaged in this sort of world of hedge funds or finance, whereas uh, Soros made his money, uh, would be aware of him. So uh, as it indicates, Soros was uh, someone who was born in Hungary in the 30s. Um, his uh, father, who is actually a very well-known Esperantist, uh, sort of Esperanto, the international language, the goal was that it would be at some point everyone's second language. And Soros's father was this big Esperantist, and he changed the family's name from, uh, I believe it was Schwartz, uh, to Soros. Um, which to him had a more sort of internationalist sound and also, of course, wasn't Jewish and it wasn't, you know, necessarily that great to be a Jew in Hungary in the 1930s. Um, So Soros and his family, uh, uh, you know, the Holocaust uh, happened in, of course, in the early to mid-1940s. Hungary is invaded by Nazi Germany. And Soros and his family um, are actually able to go underground. And And they survived the Holocaust and they survived World War II by assuming essentially Christian uh, identities. And And most Hungarian Jews do not survive. Yes, most Hungarian Jews uh, do not survive the war. I believe it is two-thirds of Hungary's Jews um, die in the Holocaust. I'm not exactly sure of the exact number, but it's it's a very, very high amount. for uh, the number of hung- uh, Hungarian Jews who who die in the Holocaust, so so they survived the war, assume Christian identities, and this is the the origins of that very strange right wing myth that Roseanne Barr uh, tweeted out, which was actually the first in the salvo of of so called ambient tweets um, that that eventually got her fired. She said that George Soros had sold his uh, family out to the Nazis, which of course isn't true, and is an anti Semitic slur. Um, so Soros survives. Uh, the Holocaust. And, and in 1947, I believe it was, he leaves Hungary uh, for London to make a career uh, for himself. He eventually enters into the uh, finance world, but not before uh, taking classes at the London School of Economics with a, a very well-known philosopher, a famous philosopher named Karl Popper. And it's really his his encounter with Popper that's the most crucial uh, intellectual experience in Soros's life. Soros uh, experiences, goes to London, meets Popper, eventually gets into finance, um, and in the 50s moves to New York and becomes a trader, starts one of the biggest hedge funds um, of all time uh, called, uh, I believe it was, um, whatever, it doesn't matter. He started one of the uh, big hedge funds, uh, makes his uh, the most a very famous trade in 1992. 
really a, a very well-known public figure, even though in the 80s, uh, really I think it was in 79 is when he started his first philanthropic effort. He started it actually in uh, helping out black students in apartheid South Africa, but quickly moves to attempting to create a quote-unquote open society in Eastern Europe, and we could talk about that a bit later. And eventually in the 2000s comes out uh, very much in favor of the Democratic Party. Uh, he's very anti-Iraq war and anti uh, the Bush II's uh, foreign policy um, and becomes associated with the Democratic Party and eventually over the next 10 years becomes an anti-Semitic meme on the uh, far right. So that's Soros in capsule biography form. <laughs> is this just plain anti-Semitism or is it anti-Semitism plus something or somethings else? I think there's really mostly why Soros in particular um, has become such a focus on the right wing. I think it has mostly to do with anti-Semitism. I mean, the figure of the the, the banker Jew or sort of the, the moneyed Jew goes back hundreds of years, uh, centuries really, to, to the medieval period where uh, Jews were accused of ch uh, charging interest against Christian um, uh, against Christian people. And there's this long trope in, in Western thought and Christian thought in particular about, about Jews sort of ruling the world through money and finance that ex goes forward to the Rothschild family and then eventually is embodied most recently in George Soros. So I think, yeah, the reason he's such a bugaboo of the right has to do with his Judaism very much, uh, very specifically. Can you explain a little bit about the distinction between the American right wing portrayal of Soros and this very particular way he is portrayed in, in Hungary, in, in the, the country of his birth. I think the major difference is in, in America, it's more subtext, even though the subtext is often pretty obvious. And in Hungary, it might be more text where, for example, they'll make claims that Soros is trying to undermine Christian Hungary, that he's a foreigner, that he couldn't possibly understand what Hungarians, i.e. Christian Hungarians, truly want, and that Soros is trying to undermine Hungary by uh, allowing basically Muslims uh, into the country by forcing by forcing Hungary to give up its Christian heritage. And it's, it's pretty obvious that it's linked to Soros, uh, that the idea is that Soros is an international Jew. Um, it's not quite often stated in the same way on the American right, even though someone like Glenn Beck or Alex Jones, when they create these wild conspiratorial uh, cons conspiracy theories with Soros at the center, often use barely coded anti-Semitic language of, of, of governance and, and ruling behind the curtains and using money to manipulate uh, good Americans that read good Christian Americans. Um, so there, there's a lot of similarities there, but I think in Hungary, the difference is that it's, it's actively promoted by the president of the, of the, or the prime minister rather of Hungary. And in a way that it's still a little fringy on the, on the American right to be so obviously anti-Semitic with Soros, even though we could see how it comes out into the light with uh, Roseanne Barr and her, her famous uh, ambient tweets. And for Orban, does, does Soros pose a, a real material, like a substantive material, an ideological threat, or does he more serve as a useful pretext for Orban's far-right nationalist authoritarian project? Uh, I, in my opinion, Soros is, is, poses no threat to Orban or anything that could, or could really do anything to undermine Hungarian uh, politics. And it's just so interesting, particularly with Orban, because Orban was a major 
uh, recipient of Soros's aid in the 1990s. I believe he attended uh, university under grants given by Soros's Open Society Foundations. So it's pretty ironic. Orban or was a least. young was a young liberal. Back yeah, in the day. exactly. A young liberal, a young liberal cum fascist. And so it's pretty ironic that he turned against his his um, previous benefactor. And it, it says something perhaps pretty interesting about the course of Eastern European politics or politics in the former Soviet bloc over the course of the 1990s, 2000s and now 2010s. I do want to talk about that. But first, you mentioned that Soros went to, to London, I believe, to to study. And something that's distinctive about him, he, like many billionaires, considers himself an intellectual of sorts. That's not unusual. But but un- <laughs> unlike most, he actually is. Uh, can you explain a little bit what sort of thinking he's steeped in and how it compares to the sort of pablum embraced by most of his counterparts? So I set out to write this piece on Soros for N plus one because I was basically like, who who is this guy? Why did he become this this figure, et cetera, et cetera? And I expected to go into it basically saying his ideas were nonsense. He had really not thought about them deeply. He was just surrounded by by yes men, um, and uh, you know, sort of a, a similar critique to one what one might say about Mark Zuckerberg, who is really just really come out as, as such an uninteresting and unthoughtful person, or someone <laughs> like Bill Gates. Yeah, it's just it's really funny. I mean, I'm personally still hoping that he runs for president. I think he's just the right person that we need in this country at this time. But he's really come off, you know, terribly since since he was speaking in front of Congress. And it really comes off how he hadn't thought about deeply or really at all about some of the the major uh, issues of the technology and the and the platform that he's created, or even someone like Bill Gates, who basically lists middlebrow authors like Steven Pinker as these brilliant philosophers who really show the world where it's going. I thought we would get something similar with Soros, but he actually is kind of really an intellectual. He's clearly thought very deeply about a lot of very complex issues. And he oftentimes, and this was quite you know surprising to me in a, in a, in a good way, I, I guess I would say, is that he, he oftentimes has had pretty good politics in the sense that particularly during the early 2000s, during the Iraq war, he was very much against Bush's expansionist imperialist foreign policy from the from the get go uh, in a very good way. And even in the 1990s, he's very skeptical and critical of what he called market fundamentalism and what market fundamentalism, what I essentially think he means by that is sort of hyper-capitalist neoliberalism uh, in the ways in which it could it could undermine society. And I was completely not expecting this from, you know, obviously a billionaire who is in this grotesque, who, who earned uh, a, a grotesque amount of money. As a another point on that front, in he is by far and away, as far as I know, one of the largest funders of organizations fighting the drug war in the United yes. States. And that is a pretty unusual philanthropic focus compared to, you know, Gates funding, you know, just malaria, yeah, malaria eradication projects or all the various rich people who fund neoliberal <laughs> school reform. Right. I mean, Soros is great on certain issues. He's great on the drug war. He's great on, on sex work, actually. Recently, the Open Society Foundation has uh, started a project to, to help normalize uh, sex work and, and basically to decriminalize and eventually legalize it, as far as I understand. That's what they want to do. And he's also really good on prosecutorial reform. He, for example, contributed to the campaign of Philadelphia's Larry Krasner. An so, independent so in, expenditure on that uh, in support right. of that campaign to be 
Sorry, to nitpick. <laughs> no, 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 please. please nitpick. nitpick away, nitpick away. Uh, we want to be accurate about that. So exactly. So so he's actually good on certain issues. Uh, I mean, in my opinion, he, he doesn't particularly understand the dynamics of capitalism uh, for, uh, very well. Uh, and there are some other significant blind spots in his thought. Um, but I was actually rather surprised of, about how thoughtful he was about certain of these uh, of these issues. Explain a little bit about his intellectual influences sure. and, and what his foundation is called the Open Society Foundation. What what what, what is this open sci- society that he endeavors to construct and what's his theory of how such a transformation comes about? Sure. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, Soros went to the London School of Economics and he took classes with this Austrian emigre philosopher named Karl uh, Popper. Now, now Popper came of age uh, very famously in quote unquote Red Vienna in Socialist Vienna uh, in the in the 30s. He came of he was born in 1902, I believe, and and you know developed. He was a young communist. Eventually, becomes a liberal. Um, so he started. Popper started his career as a philosopher of science, but he became most known for a 1945 book he titled uh, that he wrote that he titled The Open society and its enemies. And what Popper was essentially trying to figure out, at least in my opinion, was uh, he was trying to figure out what is the place for assimilated and secular Jews like him in an ethno-nationalist world. So um, Popper was born into a political formation called, as many of the listeners to the dig no doubt know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And for many Jews after the Austro-Hungarian Empire collapsed in World War I, this was really the high point of political organization because in this, uh, Hungar- uh, on this, in this empire, in this Austrian empire, um, they believed that there was a philosophy called cosmopolitanism or really a philosophy that was given a uh, name by Popper called cosmopolitanism. And the idea was that you could have various identities coexisting in a, in a city like Vienna or in a nation or an empire like Austria-Hungary. And that even though that everyone had their own private beliefs, they could come out into public and they could engage with each other as equals. And this was a, a cosmopolitan society or a Popper would term the open society. So Soros's in, and, and in other words, the solution to the Jewish question, to Marx's exactly. Jewish so question. Popper's, exactly. So uh, Hitler's solution to the Jewish question was to kill everyone. Popper's solution to the Jewish question was to basically establish an open society where Jews would be able to have their own private beliefs and would be able to have their own particularistic ethnic and religious identities, but would nonetheless be able to participate in society as equals. So in essence, that was Popper's solution to the so-called Jewish Question the Judenfrage. Um, now Soros encountered Popper, and he was really uh, startled by his brilliance, by his his sort of anti charisma, uh, in in a sense, and he basically became an intellectual acolyte of Popper's. It's a little unclear to me how close they were. They certainly met each other uh, a, a, a number of times, um, but I'm not sure how much Popper knew about Soros. But Soros definitely modeled himself on on Popper, at least modeled his personal philosophy on Popper, on the idea that the best one can do is create an open society. Now, of course, what are what is the opposite of an cl- open society? It is a closed society. And what are the two paradigmatic examples of closed societies? Dan, I'm sure you'll be surprised to hear. Fascism are- and behind the Iron Curtain. Exactly. So um, so on one hand, fascism was the ultimate closed society. And that's really what Popper had in mind when he was writing The Open Society and its enemies uh, in exile. And uh, originally he went to New Zealand uh, before World War 
two, I believe, uh, and then eventually, like very much of, of, of um, like very many intellectuals and people through across the political spectrum throughout what might be broadly termed the West, between the 1945 and, and the 1950s, he began to transfer his anxieties about fascism onto what was considered the quote unquote totalitarian Soviet Union. And I think just for, for dig listeners, I just want to emphasize how critical this analogy is to understanding post-1945 liberalism. Because before uh, World War II, there's a, a very much a liberal fascination with the Soviet Union. You see it in the late 20s and the early 30s. Uh, and this continues to... Uh, and this is part of the popular front era. Yes, the Popular Front era, and and it begins to end really with the Moscow trials of 36, 37, though it continues to a degree, but it really ends uh, between 45 and 50, and it ends at different points for different people, and um, I, we could talk about that later. I go into it in, in my, my own book, Democracy in Exile, but just the important thing to note here is that the analogy of, of uh, Soviet communism or Bolshevism uh, with, with uh, Nazi Germany and fascism under the rubric of quote-unquote totalitarianism is really critical for understanding why liberals agree to fight a Cold War, because they view the Soviet Union really as an existential threat that was very much analogous to the Nazis. And Popper and sort of books like The Open Society and Its Enemies were critical means by which intellectuals helped promote this transition from emergency during World War II to permanent emergency during the Cold War. And it's this idea that Soros really imbibes under Popper at the LSC. How is it that Soros translates this philosophy of open societies into a program that he's funding with huge amounts of money? So, um, well, of course he has to make his money. So Soros eventually at some point has to make a choice whether he's going to be a PhD student in philosophy or whether he's going to try to make money on on the equivalent of, of Wall Street in, in London and then, of course, in, in New York itself. And he eventually decides that for whatever reason, uh, I, I would like to get access to his papers to figure out why exactly he makes this choice, but he decides to go into finance. So over the course of the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, he begins to really make his money on Wall Street, particularly through hedge fund trading. And Soros always claims, again, it's difficult to know without actually looking at contemporary documents, but that his philosophy really helped him understand, or his philosophical leanings really helped him understand the ways the markets would move. And he actually does turn out to be a pretty a pretty great um, financial trader, and he makes a ton of money. Uh, but what's really interesting is by the late 1970s, Soros has this interesting quote where, he's, where he essentially says, I, I decided I made too much money. I, not too much money, but I had made enough money. I don't need to worry about it. And I could actually do what I really want to do with my life, which is uh, try to create open societies the world over. So what he does is he founds um, a philanthropy in the late 70s. Again, initially, he, he works in apartheid South Africa, but quickly moves to Eastern Europe, where he does things like um, promote fellowships for Eastern Europeans to travel to the West, where he funds Xerox machines so people could spread, um, you know, ideas uh, throughout the populace, and these various other uh, behaviors, these non-governmental behaviors that that he what he wants to do is sort of open what he considers the closed societies of the Soviet bloc in Eastern Europe, um, and he becomes a really influential uh, figure. Uh, during this moment with with helping open the 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 areas behind the iron curtain which to my mind is 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 not a bad thing i i think uh we on the left could be free to criticize uh, oppression and lack of 
particular freedoms, such as freedom of speech, freedom of association, etc. So he does these things. They could definitely use some copying machines. Yes, <laughs> definitely, definitely use that. So this is what he does in the, in the 1980s. And he becomes and, and this is really critical for understanding the memory of Soros in, in Eastern Europe and also in Russia. So uh, for many Eastern Europeans now today, Soros is an example of Western interference in, in, in into their sovereign territory, which is why one of the many reasons he, he's receiving such pu- uh, pushback throughout what, what might be called the former Eastern Bloc. Which is ironic because the very right wing forces that are accusing him of being this outside agitator intervening in Central and Eastern Europe were, in in Orban's case, the very same people who were were benefiting from the movement against totalitarian communism, you know, as it was understood that he was funding back in the day. Yeah. Exactly. It's weird. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's very interesting. And it just shows sort of the complexities of post-Soviet, post-Cold War Eastern European politics. And really the the whole history of Central uh, Eastern Europe or what was called, I think it was called after the Cold War, you start getting all these people writing about East Central Europe as its own territory. Middle Europa is a way that it's sometimes referred to in in German and sort of the complexities of these former imperial territories, essentially, whether they were former Russian territories or the former Austro, uh, Austro-Hungarian territories and, and that were created into nation states over the course of the early 20th century. So we're basically still working out these very fundamental problems in Eastern Europe of, of nationalism and identity and what it means to be a nation state in, a, in this what might be, I think, legitimately be called a post-imperial context. The upshot of your essay is that Soros has invested a lot intellectually and a lot more financially into creating a certain type of world that he thinks of as the open society. And the very opposite of that world seems to be ascendant all over the place with the rise of xenophobic, militarist, bigoted far right. And I want to quote from your, your your essay. You write, while Soros recognized earlier than most the limits of hyper-capitalism, his class position made him unable to advocate the root and branch, read anti or post-capitalist, reforms necessary to bring about the world he desires. The system that allows George Soros to accrue the wealth that he has, has proven to be a system in which cosmopolitanism will never find a stable home. Explain your argument about the con- the fundamental contradiction between the economic system that Soros believes in, even though he believes in a, in a, in a fairly restrained version of capitalism, on the one hand, and on the other hand, this, this social reality that he, he wants to create. Right. And so this is, I think, a really interesting element in in what might be called Jewish intellectual thought that goes back to the 19th century. And it's the idea that capitalism is actually good for the Jews, because in 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 a capitalist society, you could engage just through market exchanges, right? People don't care 
what your ethnic identity is. They care that you have this good and they care that you're able to sell to them at a good price. So this is, I think, a strong, um, like, uh, so you have very influential Jewish left-wing thinkers, of course, the entire Frankfurt School. Marx is a very influential left-wing thinker. I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, but there's also this strand about the Jewish confrontation with modernity and particularly with Christian anti-Semitism, that ethno-nationalism that thinks that capitalism is a means to, to uh, create a cosmopolitan society in which Jews will find a home. Um, but I think what's happened is that, is, is that Soros, at least, hasn't recognized that the contradictions inherent in capitalism itself cannot simply be overcome with more regulation or, more, or, or basically a personal commitment to doing good. And I think Soros's major failure comes in the fact that when people – he, he, he says this often in his books – that people should interact in the market basically ruthlessly. They should search only for their uh, own self-interests. But at, when it comes to politics and voting, they should take the interests of society into a whole. So basically what Soros wants to do is create a firewall between economic activity and political activity, which in my opinion at least is personally a very naive way of understanding how people actually interact in the world and the, create, uh, and the connections between economic and political Cultures. So ultimately, Soros is not really able to come out against capitalism, even though at certain moments he seems on the edge of it. For example, at one point, he says there's no connection. There's no real connection. Uh, sorry, he says the connection between capitalism and democracy is, a quote, I believe the quote is tenuous at best. He's never able to come out against capitalism full stop. And, and that's because, uh, and, and which I think is his major intellectual failing at this point, because it's become very clear that capitalism tends towards extremes. Yes, as, as Marx predicted 150 years ago, it tends towards capital accumulation, and, and which necessarily tends towards political stability in the sorts of racism and xenophobia and ethno-nationalism ultimately uh, uh, that we're seeing rise in the United States and elsewhere throughout the world. And I think this is really his fundamental problem. It's not hyper-capitalism, it's capitalism. And I think Soros is really never able to make that leap probably for a variety of, uh, of contingent historical reasons. And of course, is the fact that he's a billionaire, right? Ultimately, that might be the most contingent, <laughs> contingent reason of all the, the, bil right, the, exactly. the, the billion plus that he is in possession. Of. Right. You, the billion, the billionaires are never going to be able to really come out against capitalism, which I, which is the, a real problem again with our society when it's so governed by these, this small cadre, really the small cadre of Musk's, Musk's, DeVos's, Zuckerberg's, Gates's, Bezos, Soros's, etc., is that they're never going to be able to advocate the reforms that are that are necessary. And this is why it's sort of the whole philanthropic capitalism uh, and liberal obsession, or with the idea of the good billionaire, is really is really, in my opinion, faulty. Because at this particular moment, they're just not the people we need to look to for leadership, for either political leadership, economic leadership, cultural leadership, what have you. Is the correct materialist assessment of the shortcomings? in George Soros's political philosophy, that that philosophy is fundamentally idealist rather than materialist because of his material conditions? Exactly. And, and I think that's a really great way of putting it. And what I argued in the article is that he ultimately sees ideas as driving history. So he's very much a not uh, not a materialist. He doesn't see the connection, or I think he doesn't see it as enough as he as as he possibly could about how material conditions necessarily shape one's ideology and one's ideas. Now, I'm not a pure historical materialist. I think ideas and material interact in sort of a a, a very complex. Um, relationship going back and forth where ideas affect material, material affects ideas, et cetera, et cetera. But for Soros- So does Marx in the 18th premier. 
Yeah, so does Mark. Yeah, yeah, there's a good pedigree there. Um, and this is and this is what's funny when you go into sort of the the uh, examining Marx, like like his writings are the Bible. You know, there's contradictions, there's tensions, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And many people in the 20s and the 30s spent their lives uh, doing that. But um, yeah, and I, I think I think that's that's really the problem with his view. Ideas don't always drive history and they don't drive history in the way that he assumes. And also he, I think, has a very naive understanding of how politics actually work. Soros responded to your essay. It was initially published in N plus one and then republished in The Guardian. And he responded with a letter to the editor in The Guardian, respectfully taking issue with your piece. He seemed sincerely (laughs) appreciative of what is truly like a a fair, generous, and very substantive engagement with with who he is as a as a person and a philanthropist and a businessman. But his the issue he took was that he said that he has in fact been a quote steadfast promoter of quote root and branch reforms. Lay out what you saw as the the, the core of Soros's response and what you make of it. It's actually a pretty interesting methodological question for historians when they – this is one of the problems or, or one of the, the difficulties or tensions in oral history um, or relying on historical actors themselves to evaluate their own actions in the past. Um, they're useful tools sometimes, but really you need to go back to the contemporary documents. Um, but with this particular issue about the root and branch reforms, I think we would disagree as to what root and branch would be. I, I think that we need to replace capitalism or capitalist society or the capitalist political economy. You could get more specific and less abstract um, with with a, a, a socialist vision of the world uh, where ultimately ownership and private property and capital are totally reimagined and the relationship between a, a, a person and her, his uh, society is completely reimagined, particularly the relationship to the political economy. Soros never advocated that. Um, I think Soros, what he said as root, what he would take to be root and branch reforms or sort of the hyper capitalism, which he did uh, of the 1990s of the post-Cold War era, the deregulation uh, spur of the Clinton administration, the repealing of Glass-Steagall. And Soros did, uh, to be fair, criticize those. But again, th- this is what's so interesting is that it, it, it doesn't it, it's not hyper capitalism it's capitalism itself a kinder gentler capital a kinder gentler capitalism doesn't exist and we know that because we actually have a historical period where capitalism didn't have any constraints for most of the second half of the 20th century capitalism had an existential enemy or perceived existential enemy in soviet communism and soviet communism as many historians have demonstrated forced capitalists to essentially come to some sort of compromise uh, what aziz rana in m plus one calls a cold war compromise with the left where the left was essentially able to and labor in particular was essentially able to to um, keep its gains as long as it agreed to fight a cold war so basically soviet communism it appears in retrospect kept the worst aspects of capitalism some sort of check but absent that existential threat you know the post-1991 world capitalism as marx predicted as many other people predicted again tends to accumulate wealth tends to lead to income inequality and so that's how we could we could see that again it's not hypercapitalism of the time that Soros rightfully decries. I mean, we should all decry that. Every thinking person should decry that. But it's capitalism itself. And he was never able to see beyond the vision of the system that he had totally dominated and from which he was an enormous benefactor, a benefactor uh, which he benefited to, sorry, not enormous benefactor, from which he benefited enormously 
and benefited to such a degree that it, it's almost impossible to imagine the amount of wealth that George Soros has. It's really impossible to imagine. And there, to me, at least, and I assume to everyone who's listening to this, there's, it's a sign of a sick society that someone is allowed, and they use that word advisedly, allowed, that society has allowed this person to accrue that much wealth. It's really problematic and indicative of a very uh, sick way of living in the world and organizing a political economy. I think the reason that your careful, close, considerate evaluation of Soros is so revealing is because you're looking at the shortcomings of easily the best billionaire philanthropist who capitalism has ever produced. Exactly. And I and that's what's interesting and that's what's surprising and compelling about Soros. I mean, I think he he's really such a sign of the age that I think people are actually going to be studying him for quite a bit. He's he's I, as I put it in the Like article, he's a good person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's not like a piece of shit. You know, he he act he actually gives his money to like causes you and I would would promote. I mean, also we're anti-malarial, but but Soros like really <laughs> we're not in favor. The dig has a strong anti-malaria stance. Stand. Yeah, speak for yourself. Speak for yourself, Bessner. <laughs> oh God, big malaria has gotten to you too. Um, but anyway, uh, the point is is that Soros. He actually, I don't think he's a bad person. I think he really does want the world to be more equal, and he's given his money uh, to, to causes. But the problem is, is that doesn't matter. Is that in capitalism, you're not able to make the sorts of reforms or the types of reforms that he he is is advocating and, and that he has promoted. You could you could change at the margins, but ultimately the system is going to turn against the mass of people as it's done from the beginning and as it continues to do. Uh, today, but this is—I do think it's important uh, on the left, at least uh, le uh, um, sort of left intellectuals who examine this issue, to to take the best of liberalism and examine it and really take it on its own terms to see what its failures are. In my opinion, that's really uh, one of the best ways to build a defense against it and to ensure that people aren't, you know, tricked again, for lack of a better phrase, or, or uh, ongoingly tricked into believing in the system which has failed so, so many people. Yeah, it seems a lot more productive than just sniping at Nira Tandon on Twitter. I think people like Soros give a better understanding of, of who, what people in the in the system and what people who support the system want to believe about it. And by exposing the various contradictions inherent in people like Soros's thought or people like Soros's action, you're really able to get a better understanding of what the system is. Well, Daniel Bessner, thank you very much. Oh, thanks so much, Dan. It was really fun. Daniel Bessner is a professor of American foreign policy in the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington, and the author of Democracy in Exile, Hans Speyer in the Rise of the Defense Intellectual, published this year by Cornell University Press. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that humans do make their own history, but certainly not in conditions of their own choosing, however much they might wish that were the case. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please do leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. 
What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation going. Even a few bucks is a big help. Thank you.